This podcast is once again presented by the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. Journey through Virginia's rich history and discover hidden treasures. You can learn more at virginiahistory.org. How's everyone doing? We just wanted to let you know we are thinking of you all and are so glad you join us each week. I'm your host, Rachel DePompa. My day job is an investigative reporter with the NBC affiliate WWBT in Richmond, Virginia. This is episode two of season three. Still can't believe we have a season three. You guys are amazing. This week, we are turning back the clock on the week of April 27th through May 3rd. In season two of How We Got Here, we told you all about the Battle of Fredericksburg, a rare winter campaign that ended in absolute disaster for the Union Army. As our guest historian Frank O'Reilly put it, Absolute blood sacrifice. It was a mess from beginning to end. Many people think that it's it's just a, a horrible slaughter rather than a battle. That murderous affair in Fredericksburg was mid-December, 1862. Less than five months later, and about 12 miles west, is the Battle of Chancellorsville. It was the bloodiest battle that the Union Army of the Potomac and the Confederate Army of Northern Virginia had ever had up to that date. It was late April, 1863. But before I set the scene, I want to say we told you in season two that we would have Frank O'Reilly back, and we stayed true to our word. This is the return of the storyteller's storyteller. The lead historian at the Fredericksburg and Spotsylvania National Military Park with decades of knowledge just waiting to be unleashed. We met Frank in person this time. He traveled to Richmond to tell us this sordid tale. Ambrose Burnside, the Union commander at Fredericksburg, had fallen away in disgrace in the aftermath of that uh, debacle. His replacement was actually his nemesis, a general named Joseph Hooker. Very self-assured, but also self-important, perhaps even a bit of a person who was arrogant. His nickname was Fighting Joe. He claimed he didn't like it, but uh, at the same time did nothing to disabuse people of using it. Side note here, longtime Richmonders may know a local, modern-day Fighting Joe, but this battle didn't take place in a courtroom. It was Joseph Hooker who took the down-and-out Union Army and rebuilt its confidence and morale. In just a few months, he had 125,000 men ready to take the field of battle. At one point, he proclaimed them the finest army on the planet. Uh, He would discover that at least for one week, it was the second finest army on the planet. Their adversaries, led by General Robert E. Lee, had a string of impressive victories in 1862. But after Fredericksburg, Lee's army had bigger problems than the much larger Union Army. They were having a hard time feeding themselves, and as a result, uh, they had to disperse many of their forces to Southside Virginia and to North Carolina looking for food. Lee's army had dwindled in strength from 78,000 men in December to barely 55 to 60,000 in the spring of 1863. And it wasn't just feeding his army that Lee had to worry about. Starting in March, Robert E. Lee faced an opponent he had never faced before, himself. Uh, His health collapsed. Uh, He had the first attacks of what we would assume today to be acute pericarditis or heart disease. And it left him bedridden for much of March and it left him also shaken about his own physical ability to handle an active campaign. With health problems for the Confederate commander and a decent chunk of his forces too far away to help, the odds were beginning to mount against Lee and his men. 
everything was coming together for Joseph Hooker at exactly the moment when everything seemed to be falling apart for Robert E. Lee. General Hooker knew it was time to strike. On April 27, 1863, he launched an offensive across the Rappahannock River, right at the heart of Confederate defenses. He initially crossed Union forces over the river at Fredericksburg, exactly where Burnside had done in December of 1862, creating the illusion that the Union Army was going to replicate all the mistakes they had made in December and hoping to induce the Confederates to do everything they had done right in December. And the Confederates played right into Hooker's trap. With all the focus on Fredericksburg, nobody was paying attention to a Union force to the west that quietly crossed the river, concentrating at a place called Chancellorsville. Chancellorsville is a misnomer. It automatically conjures up the idea that it's a town or a village. But in fact, it was just one building sitting in a remote, destitute crossroads. It was a grandiose building in and of itself. It was a landmark. And the Chancellor family put the name Ville on the end of it to pay homage to its extravagance. It was the cornerstone of the wilderness. It was the iconic spot of the wilderness. But it also became the iconic spot of the Battle of Chancellorsville itself. For right now, in this story, the Union force was right behind Robert E. Lee's lines. Hooker had successfully pulled off one of the most magnificent marches of the Civil War. He had put forces in front of Lee, and now he had forces squarely behind Lee. He had the Confederates caught in a vice. All he had to do was close the vice. If you know anything about how we got here, you know this is not where the story ends. Hooker had a third part to his plan. He had also set his cavalry free into the Confederate rear to deliberately uh, tear up railroads, deprive the Union Army of reinforcements and resupply, isolate Lee's army, and watch it literally wither and, and dwindle in strength. So instead of slamming the vice shut and destroying the Confederate army, Hooker hesitated. He told his commanders that uh, Lee only had two choices. He had to either come out from behind his strong earthworks and fight at a grave disadvantage, or he must flee ingloriously before us. As far as he was concerned, it was really a rhetorical lesson. Lee was outmaneuvered and outgunned. And if you've learned anything about Robert E. Lee, it's that he rarely lets odds like this dictate his next move. He knew that he had been outmaneuvered. He knew that the federal forces outnumbered him. But he also recognized that with each passing day, his army would struggle to feed itself even more. Their numbers and their strength would diminish. So the only time they would ever be strong was in the immediate moment. So instead of retreating, he decided to strike. Lee sent his trusted lieutenant, Stonewall Jackson, to drive the Union back towards Chancellorsville to free the Confederates of this Union vice. Jackson attacked the Union forces with a tremendous amount of relish on May 1st, 1863. That completely confused the Union commander. It wasn't what he had predicted. It wasn't what he was expecting. But Hooker convinced himself his plan could still work. He drew all his forces back into a heavily wooded area known locally as the Wilderness of Spotsylvania, or just simply the Wilderness. They set up a defensive line around the crossroads of Chancellorsville. This choice to abandon the offensive initiative and instead fall back and wait for Jackson's force did not sit well with Hooker's officers. It's probably one of the most controversial moments of the entire campaign. It was controversial for the generals under Joseph Hooker. It was controversial for every historian who's looked at the battle ever since. The big problem with Joe Hooker was he was overconfident. It was one thing to pounce on the Confederates and destroy them, but there was almost something more artful in having them destroy themselves against him. If they wanted to waste time maneuvering around him at Chancellorsville, testing his lines at Chancellorsville, going one-on-one -on -one with his strengths, every hour that passed was an hour for the Union cavalry to get into the Confederate rear and make a decisive impact by destroying their supplies. His subordinates saw things a little differently. The Union Army outnumbered the Confederates almost two and a half to one. 
They were convinced an all-out assault would crush Lee's army of Northern Virginia. All you have to do is close the vice. You don't have to wait. It doesn't have to end in a week. We can end it right now. But the Union commander would not be swayed. When they tried to convince him otherwise, Hooker insisted that he had Lee right where he wanted him. Even God Almighty, he said, couldn't help Robert E. Lee. In fact, he said, I hope God has mercy on him, for I shall have none. At least one Union commander who walked out of that meeting was not only disillusioned with Hooker for being passive, but disillusioned with his rhetoric. He said it was bad enough to fight against Robert E. Lee. He didn't want to fight against God and Robert E. Lee. Frank O'Reilly said it best. Joseph Hooker may have had a big plan that could have worked. But he overlooked one vital detail. He neglected to think his opponent had a plan too. And his opponent just so happened to be one of the most aggressive, decisive commanders in American military history. Initiative was everything with Robert E. Lee. And at least one officer pointed out that once Robert E. Lee got the initiative, rarely did he ever give it up. He moved so quickly that his opponents were forever trying to catch up. Uh, Hooker was going to find that out the hard way. And the Confederates didn't take long to take that initiative as Lee and Jackson met late in the night on May 1st, 1863 in a discussion of strategy that would become known as the Cracker Box Meeting. Because the pair sat on old Cracker Boxes due to lack of camp equipment. That's right, no chairs, not on a log, just Cracker Boxes. The two generals are often depicted as having a magnificent synergy between them to the point where it almost seems like they could finish each other's sentences. They're always on the same page. And out of that Cracker Box meeting was born a plan that would change everything. They didn't have a lot at first, but Jeb Stewart of the Cavalry uh, came in with a glowing report that he had found the Union right flank dangling up in the air is the way he put it. It was the weak link. The only thing to do now figure out how to get to and exploit that weak spot on the Union line. Robert E. Lee and his second-in-command on the battlefield, Thomas Jonathan Jackson, Stonewall Jackson, crafted one of the most unique, daring plans of the entire Civil War. They decided to divide their forces. It flies in the face of all conventional re reason and rationale cardinal rule of the soldier, the first rule, is that in the face of a larger enemy, you have to, out of necessity, concentrate your forces. In true Lee fashion, they risked it all for an opportunity for victory. This surprise attack seems downright crazy. A thin veil of Confederates, about 13,000 strong, stayed with Robert E. Lee and tried to hold the attention of almost 80,000 Union soldiers while Stonewall Jackson, with about 27,000 men, set off on a 12-mile flank march that would take the better part of a day to get around the Union Army. The Union quickly spotted this Confederate move, but General Hooker thought it was the Confederates retreating. He was oh so wrong. He had predicted all along that the Confederates had to retreat, and now he seemed to have the physical evidence to prove it. When he tested it uh, with some troops, the Confederates didn't turn and fight, but actually avoided him and kept going. To him, that also spoke to the idea that they weren't interested in fighting, they were interested in getting away. It never dawned on them that they were all coming back. As thousands of Confederates hid in the woods and slowly approached the right flank of the Union line on the late afternoon of May 2nd, the force of Mother Nature played a part, creating a scene that would sound like it's straight out of a movie. Union soldiers encamped uh, saw the wildlife of the wilderness go awry. Deer came bounding out of the woods and literally right through their camps, knocking over tents. Squirrels and fox also went scurrying underfoot or uh, over shoulders and heads. Everything in the woods had been driven out. 
The men just stopped what they were doing and stood in their tracks watching all of nature go insane. It didn't make sense to them. Picture it. It's just another day in camp. You're preparing to march the following day to go after the Confederates who you were told were retreating. And all kinds of wildlife go berserk. And as you can imagine, it was what was coming behind Mother Nature's creatures that brought the Union Army death and destruction. The whole setting for Stonewall Jackson's flank attack is sublime. When he unleashed them, he unleashed them in overwhelming force. It was like a tidal wave. That tidal wave was 20,000 Confederate soldiers in a line that stretched two miles from end to end. Uh, it was a magnificent pageantry of Confederate soldiers that had been preceded by one of the most unexpected pageantries of nature. These men had never seen anything of the sort, and many of them would never see anything like it again. The Confederates made short work of their perfect surprise attack. The Union Army made several attempts to defend itself, but no resistance lasted more than 10 minutes before they found themselves literally overwhelmed and running for their lives. But the day and the significance of what was to come can hardly be overlooked. When we talk about the drama that surrounds Chancellorsville, the drama of the Confederates splitting their forces, the drama of a flank attack, the drama of nature, there is no greater drama surrounding Chancellorsville than what happened on the evening of May 2nd, 1863. Jackson's flank attack was a success, but things were far from over. The Union was pushed back near Chancellorsville. The Confederate force was disorganized and daylight was waning. Stonewall Jackson knew that an unlikely victory could come the following day, but he needed to know the lay of the land in front of him, so he took a risk. He rode in front of his own lines to familiarize himself with the ground and the people on the ground. And it turned into his last ride. Jackson was part of two groups of cavalry that rode in front of the Confederate lines. The second group was led by his second-in-command, A.P. Hill. And then the unexpected happened. Some Union soldiers started to return to where their camp should have been. Instead, they blundered into the Confederate soldiers, busy reorganizing their lines. So the Confederates did what they should. They opened fire on the woods to clear their front. But no one could say whether the danger front was 200 yards or 300 yards or 500 yards of front. So when one unit would fire into the woods, it triggered their sister unit to their left or their right to fire as well. In an effort to quell any kind of counterattack, they blistered the wilderness with a fury of bullets. The fire rolled across the front, rolled across the highway, and regrettably for the Confederates, rolled across Stonewall Jackson's front as well. General A.P. Hill and his group of 10 horsemen were caught right in the teeth of that fire. Out of the 10, only one person walked away who wasn't shot in the body or in the horse, and that was General A.P. Hill. But fate would not be so kind to Jackson. Stonewall Jackson had taken a local path that was known as the Mountain Road. Deep in the woods, deep in the shadows, nobody ever saw Stonewall Jackson. When the 18th North Carolina Infantry fired into the woods, they never dreamed Stonewall Jackson was out there. They fired two volleys, so something in the area of 900 bullets went through those woods where Jackson was located. In his group of 11 horsemen, only three people were hurt a total of five bullets finding their unintended marks. Jackson caught three of the five bullets because he was the man in front when the firing erupted. Jackson was struck twice in his left arm, one bullet penetrating very high, about three inches below the shoulder, and it caught the bone in the arm square and just shattered it. A second bullet hit his left arm below the elbow, and it passed diagonally through his forearm, coming out at his wrist. And then a third bullet probably deflected off a tree first and lost some of its velocity. It hit him in the palm of his right hand. And while it goes th through the thinnest part of the anatomy, it was the only bullet that stayed inside Jackson's body, trapped in the backside of his hand. 
his first words were, that's wildfire, it's wildfire, sir. He recognized instantly that uh, he had been struck down by the mistaken fire of his own men. It was about 9 p.m., May 2nd, 1863, and everything that the Confederates had been striving for at Chancellorsville suddenly came to an abrupt end and they were gonna to have to write a whole new plan for what would go on because the Battle of Chancellorsville was no longer the great tandem of Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson. Jackson had played his final role. More than a week goes by before Jackson's final breath and we'll have the complete story of his final days and how it wasn't the friendly fire that took his life next week on episode three. Jackson's mortal wounding is often the end of the story for many who know the Battle of Chancellorsville. But according to Frank O'Reilly, the battle had yet to be fought. The big battle at Chancellorsville occurs after Jackson was wounded on the morning of May 3rd, 1863. At that point, Robert E. Lee wasn't on the brink of great victory. He was on the brink of great disaster, catastrophe. He had divided his army, uh, it was outnumbered, and now the Union Army was between the parts. Without his second-in-command for the very first time, Robert E. Lee changed the plan. He knew the Confederates needed to reunite their forces if they had any chance of surviving, let alone claiming victory. Robert E. Lee contacted Stonewall Jackson's successor, a major general named James Ewell Brown Stewart, or Jeb Stewart of the cavalry fame and told him that the morning of May 3rd, they needed to attack. It was a daring, bold plan. The whole plan relied on strength, brawn. There was no maneuvering to effect or advantage. Uh, this one was just to have sledgehammer blows and pound their way back towards each other. The attack started at 5 a.m. on the morning of May 3rd and it touched off a firestorm that lasted for almost five and a half hours. In those few hours, thousands would die. General James H. Lane's North Carolina Brigade, the brigade that had accidentally shot Stonewall Jackson the night before, went into the very heart of this action on May 3rd and literally got caught in a buzzsaw. Lane's brigade lost almost a thousand men out of two thousand. They had the single highest loss of any unit north or south on the battlefield. General Lane lost every single one of his officers in the entire brigade, lost most of his staff, including his little brother, Roker, and then also lost his head. James Lane was the only officer left in his entire brigade and he had a complete mental breakdown on the battlefield. He just sat on the ground, uh, hugging the dead body of his little brother, and just cried over him. Uh, nobody could talk to him, nobody could get orders from him. Remember, this battle was not in an open field. This was the Spotsylvania wilderness. The air was thick with the smell of blood, gunpowder, and smoke. Screams of agony, final prayers. To make matters worse, some areas were on fire. Flames devouring anything in their path, whether it be flesh, bone, or the woods of the wilderness. Both the Union and Confederacy lost much of their leadership in this time, and the Union commander nearly had his head taken off. Uh, Joseph Hooker himself was injured during the battle on May 3rd. He was standing on the front porch of the Chancellor House at Chancellorsville, uh, observing the battle, when a Confederate shell happened to catch the pillar he was leaning against. The pillar split in half and threw him out into the yard. The pillar wound up landing on top of him, so about 500 pounds of wood squashed the Union commander and left a blood blister that went down the entire side of his, his body from shoulder all the way to ankle. Hooker was severely concussed. Unfortunately, there were no concussion protocols back in the 1860s. So while he uh, seemed uh, to be sleepy and seemed to some to maybe even be drunk, nobody ever thought of taking him out of command. 
but the general was un incapable of making decisions, uh, was incapable of getting around the battlefield. So for the critical moment of the battle, the Union Army had no commander. It was a back and forth affair until the Confederates seized a piece of high ground called Hazel Grove, a rare farm in the midst of the wilderness that was the perfect platform for artillery. Using this advantage, they drove the Union from a place called Fairview and continued to seize Chancellorsville. And here is born the backdrop of Chancellorsville's greatest moment. As the Confederates converged on Chancellorsville from all directions, and all of them flooded this clearing with the house ablaze in the background, the soldiers had a sense of exhaustion, a sense of accomplishment. They never dreamed that they would ever get to this clearing given the odds against them, and yet they had managed to do it. And when Lee rode into their midst, they had an instant and overpowering ovation to him. They just started cheering at him. The Confederate Army had cheered other generals before, including Stonewall Jackson, but never Robert E. Lee. One staff officer really had a, a beautiful, affecting way of capturing the essence of the event, the feel of the event. His name was Charles Marshall, and he was a direct descendant of Chief Justice John Marshall. Serving on Lee's staff, he rode into the clearing with him there, and he said that the wounded men were laying on the ground, raised their weak and feeble voices with those of the hearty, strong voices of the men still in ranks, and together their voices literally filled the entire clearing and it was from moments such as these that Marshall imagined that men of ancient times may have been raised to the stature of gods. To him, it was beyond realistic. It was beyond a man-made moment. It took on a mythical proportion in the immediacy of the moment. It was a sublime benediction between commander and army. But this benediction came at an incredibly high cost. In the fighting around Chancellorsville, and particularly May 3rd, the Union Army had lost over 17,000 men. The Confederates, for evicting them from the woods, had lost over 14,000 men. And when you consider the size of both armies, the Confederates lost a much higher percentage of men. For such a sacrifice, Lee wanted a decisive victory, something he never got at Chancellorsville. Before he could urge his men onward to crush Hooker's force, the other half of the Union vice in Fredericksburg broke through, diverting Lee's attention long enough for Hooker's men to escape in the middle of the night, during a nor'easter rolling through Virginia. Even though the Union got away, many call the Battle of Chancellorsville Lee's greatest victory. The one person in the world who was not happy with Lee's greatest victory was Lee. He was a fellow who wanted a decisive result to justify the conclusion. When the, everything was said and done and the battle was over, the Confederates had gutted their leadership, had lost 14,000 of their most important veterans, and all they had to show for it was a snarled tangle of wilderness, a real estate that was absolutely worthless in 1863. But the Confederates did gain something out of this carnage strategic initiative. Just days after Chancellorsville, the Army of Northern Virginia took their confidence with them on a march north for the summer of 1863. They were headed to Pennsylvania, hoping to make it three victories in a row. Lee and Jackson's Cracker Box meeting hatched a plan that stands the test of time. It was so big that even he couldn't see it. He had crafted a magnificent plan on how to take a battle to his enemy, even when the odds didn't favor him. Splitting his forces, blindsiding them from behind, the flank attack became almost a signature movement that had garnered a great deal of appreciation at the time and ever since. Our military forces have always been drawing inspiration from Chancellorsville, and from Lee and Jackson's movements. General Dwight D. Eisenhower and George S. Patton were very invested in studying Civil War history and particularly Chancellorsville. 
Uh, Patton even promised Eisenhower at one point that I will be your Jackson and you will be my Lee. What Robert E. Lee did in Lee's greatest victory wasn't win the Civil War. He did something bigger. He had created a blueprint, a timeless blueprint, for how to maneuver to advantage on a battlefield and to find victory in the most improbable places. April 27, 1863. In the wake of the disaster of the Battle of Fredericksburg, the new Union commander kicked off a plan that put the Army of Northern Virginia in a vice that could have spelled its end. But a plan that defied all logic, born out of a meeting atop cracker boxes, prevailed against all odds. Robert E. Lee's greatest victory was over, and the Confederates had a date with destiny that summer in Pennsylvania. They were on their way to Gettysburg. This podcast is sponsored by the Library of Virginia, where collections of more than 129 million items tell the stories of Virginians to nearly 4 million people yearly. Find Virginia history at lva.virginia.gov. Before the Revolutionary War, Virginia was just a colony of Great Britain. Instead of elected lawmakers like we're used to today, people were appointed by the King of England. Such was the case for a man named Sir John Harvey, who was the royal governor of Virginia in the early 17th century. But on April 28, 1635, Harvey was thrust out of office quite literally. Let's backtrack here. Harvey was appointed by King Charles I in 1628. The royal governor's first few years were a success. He oversaw a dramatic increase in population and the production of crops. But it was the conflicts between himself and the royal council in Virginia that tarnished his legacy. Because Virginia's government was under royal authority, Harvey thought that meant he had full control over the colony, while council was there to simply advise him. But as you might imagine, the councillors didn't see it that way. They felt that Harvey should only be making decisions if he had their consent. The problem was Harvey was not the kind of guy to go tiptoeing around decision-making. His aggressiveness only made things worse. It all came to a head on April 28th, when the councillors held an official protest against a planned tobacco monopoly. After learning that Harvey refused to send their signed document back to the king himself. Tobacco monopoly, that's an addition of the board game I've never heard of. Okay. That was not funny, and that's because Colton wrote that joke for me, and my jokes are only funny when they are off the top of my head. Anyway, it was at this point that both Harvey and the council tried to arrest each other on charges of treason. Imagine, you're under arrest for treason. No, you are. Turns out council brought musketeers to the verbal confrontation. Guns to a knife fight, you might say. They rushed out of the woods and surrounded Harvey's home. It soon became clear to Harvey that he had few options left. He departed for England, but he wouldn't stay there long. He had unfinished business back in the colony. Harvey would go back to Virginia in 1637, jumping right back into the role of royal governor. But not much had changed since his treason-tainted standoff two years prior. His old enemies were still there, and he didn't make it easy for anyone to like him. He once banished a colonist for speaking disrespectfully about him. And when he became angry at a clergyman, Governor Harvey banished him and confiscated all of his property. He wasn't easy to get along with. His enemies eventually engineered his removal from office a second time and brought back the man who served as royal governor before him. At this point, Harvey was widely despised and in a mountain of debt. 
In his final surviving letter from Virginia written in May of 1640, Harvey described himself as persecuted, impoverished, and pitiable. All that he asked was that he be allowed to leave the colony before his finances were completely depleted. He would stay in the colony a few more years, but he made it back to England at some point. All we know is that he died sometime before 1650, when his will was approved in the prerogative court of Canterbury. Oh, the British accent is terrible. When his will was approved in court. April 28, 1635. The royal governor of Virginia and his council point fingers at each other, threatening arrest for the land's highest crime, treason. Treason or not, such accusations tarnish reputations, sometimes centuries after death. Here on How We Got Here, we tell you about a lot of firsts in Virginia. Some good, others not so good. This next story made headlines all the way up to the Supreme Court for all the wrong reasons. And it was a ruling that had implications across the globe, used by one of the most wretched regimes in modern history. It informed the policies of Adolf Hitler in, in Nazi Germany. One of Hitler's doctors who was running their own sterilization programs actually cited Buck v. Bell as a model for um, Nazi Germany's sterilization programs. May 2nd, 1927. In a vote of eight to one, the nation's highest court upholds a Virginia law that allows the state to forcibly sterilize people in public institutions like jails or mental asylums. The case was called Buck v. Bell. We went back to our expert on all bad things in Virginia, Dr. Karen Sherry with the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. And I kid because she is gracious enough to talk about these subjects with us. <laughs> I seem to be, yes, your, your go-to person for these more, more painful aspects of our history, but I think it's the nature of life that we, we do good, we do bad, um, and we have to deal with all of that, especially in our understanding of history and how history has impacted how we got here today. Buck v. Bell came down to a simple premise. Basically, to prevent people that the state deemed undesirable for some reason, wanted to prevent them from reproducing. Undesirable in the early decades of the 20th century was applied to criminals, was applied to promiscuous women, was applied to anyone who had any kind of either real or perceived mental disability. It also coincided with the rise of a movement guided by the ideas of white supremacy, eugenics. Now, eugenics in the day was presented as a science, but it is science that has been completely debunked, so today we would call it a pseudoscience. Eugenics was this notion that you could improve the human race by controlling reproduction. It's based on the notion that certain traits were passed down from parents to children. Along with that belief was the erroneous idea that traits like criminality, like immorality, and so forth, all sorts of characteristics that we now deem as more social characteristics were considered genetic traits. So this fake science, eugenics, was the basis for several state-sponsored programs to sterilize these so-called undesirables, one of whom was named Carrie Buck. Carrie Buck was born in Charlottesville in 1906. She was born to a mother who was impoverished, was sometimes homeless, had gotten into a little trouble with the law. Because of that, her mom was eventually sent to the Virginia colony for epileptics and feeble-minded. Carrie was put into the custody of foster parents at the age of three. At age 17, she was deemed feeble-minded. 
which was a word used to describe anyone who seemed non-normative in their intellectual capabilities. It was also, though, a term used to describe women who were sexually promiscuous, especially unmarried women. And in 1923, Carrie Buck had gotten pregnant. Later historians believe that she was raped by um, the nephew of her foster parents. She was 17, she was unmarried, and she was pregnant, so she was considered promiscuous, immoral, and that was grounds enough to get her declared feeble-minded. She joined her mother at the colony, or institution, and the timing could not have been worse. A man named Dr. Albert Pretty was the superintendent of the facility where the box were being held. He was a eugenicist, he was an advocate of forced sterilization, and he wanted to be sure he had the legal right unchallenged to do that, to help control the reproduction of, of the population of his institution, the colony. He helped craft a Virginia law in 1924 called the Virginia Sterilization Act, which would allow the state to sterilize inmates of prisons and mental institutions run by the state. Pretty was waiting for the perfect patient to prove his point. Unfortunately for Carrie Buck, when she was committed in 1924, it was just at the moment that Dr. Pretty and other supporters of eugenics and forced sterilization were looking for that test case to test Virginia's law to make sure that it would withstand judicial review, legal challenges, and so forth. That's really the tragedy of, of Carrie's story, and, and it gets uglier. She was assigned a lawyer to represent her during these legal proceedings. This lawyer, however, was a former board member of the colony, and he was a supporter of eugenics. Her case went through three stages. It began in Amherst County Circuit Court, where it was decided that Carrie would be sterilized. The next year, the Virginia Supreme Court of Appeals agreed, and finally the case went before the U.S. Supreme Court in 1927. By an eight-to-one decision, the U.S. Supreme Court upheld that sterilization order. And that really gave the legal protections to forcibly sterilize inmates of public institutions. So we see, beginning in 1927, states across the land actively beginning to practice and to pass legislation to sterilize those patients and other inmates. But through all three of those phases where Carrie appeared in court, her lawyer never called witnesses in her defense. In the end, Carrie Buck was forcibly sterilized. In those days, uh, likely meant that her, her tubes were tied. Um, that was the procedure used against women generally. Sometimes hysterectomies were performed to sterilize women, but tubal ligation was the more common procedure. Tragically, historians now believe there was nothing wrong with Carrie Buck's mental abilities. She lived into old age. She died in 1983, but she was known as someone who liked to read the newspapers, liked to do crossword puzzles. The initial designation of feeble-mindedness that got her committed to the colony, that was likely motivated by the fact that she was an unwed mother and therefore considered an immoral and promiscuous young woman who should not be allowed to pass on those traits to her children under the erroneous beliefs of, of eugenics. It wasn't just Carrie and her mother. The prosecution bolstered their case by also using the example of Carrie's daughter. A social worker went to observe her daughter Vivian, who was living with foster parents. The social worker, you know, spent a few minutes observing Vivian Buck, thought she looked a little abnormal um, because she crawled a little more slowly than another baby and so deemed Vivian Buck feeble-minded as well. Supporters of eugenics believed Carrie's family history proved the genetic transmission of traits like feeble-mindedness. Because her mother had been committed to the colony, Carrie Buck was committed, and they believed her daughter was also feeble-minded. So here we had three generations 
And that phrase, three generations, it's a quote from the famous opinion rendered by U.S. Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes about this case. I'll read you a quote from the opinion, and this is Justice Holmes writing. It is better for all the world if instead of waiting to execute degenerate offspring for crime or let them starve for their imbecility, society can prevent those who are manifestly unfit from breeding their kind. Three generations of imbeciles are enough. That eight to one decision was considered a decisive victory for the eugenics movement and gave several other states the confidence to move forward with their own sterilization programs. Between 1927 and the 1970s, when this widespread practice was stopped, it's believed that somewhere between 65 to 73,000 Americans were sterilized, including possibly up to 8,000 Virginians. It's just astounding, the numbers, that this actually happened, that Virginia led the way on this. Sometimes these sterilizations happen to people without their knowledge. One of them also happened to be from Carrie Buck's family. Her sister Doris was also committed to the colony. Doris was also subjected to forced sterilization. She was told that she was having an appendectomy, so she didn't even know that her reproductive abilities had been stopped. Eventually she was released from the colony, went on to marry, and she and her husband tried for years and years and years to have children. They really wanted to build a family and were very saddened by the fact that they couldn't, but didn't realize that the reason that they couldn't was because Doris had been forcibly sterilized. It is really painful and, and sad history to think about. Several words can be used to describe the legacy of the Buck v. Bell case. Ugly, horrific, senseless. They all seem to fall short. It's a case that raises issues about how we define people's mental capacities. It also raises a whole host of issues about notions of reproductive rights and personal consent about what happens to you and, and your body. Those are issues that in different manifestations our society is still very much dealing with today. Virginia repealed its Sterilization Act in 1974. But it wasn't until 2002 that Governor Mark Warner issued an apology for the state's participation in the practice. It didn't change the reality for thousands of Americans and thousands of Virginians no longer able to have a family of their own because the state made that decision for them. Had you seen the crushed and mangled forms? Had you heard the last despairing groans of anguish, the frantic shrieks, and the plaintive prayers of the unfortunate ones who went down in that horrid pit? As I heard them, only death could efface the recollection. A pit of bodies, dozens lying lifeless. But this was no battlefield. It was inside the Virginia State Capitol, April 27, 1870, a deadly day that became known as the Capitol Calamity. And nobody understood what was about to happen. Nobody saw this disaster, this calamity happening until it did. That same Capitol building still stands in downtown Richmond. So in the midst of the General Assembly session earlier this year, we went to get the story straight from the source. My name is Mark Greeno, and I work for the Virginia General Assembly as the tour supervisor and historian at the Virginia State Capitol here in Richmond. Isn't his voice just fantastic? You're in for a ride. 
Mark Greenow is a wealth of knowledge, always on top of every story behind every nook and cranny within Thomas Jefferson's temple. I've been here getting close to 18 years, so it's a habit, and enjoy coming to work every day because there's something new to discover in the Capitol. It's a place that rewards the curious. You can talk about architectural history, you can talk about political history, you can talk about principles of leadership, you can talk about founding documents, you can talk about an outdoor, landscaped, historical, urban green space, you know, a public park we call Capitol Square. There are just layers and layers to unpeel. It's like a cafeteria of talking points at the Capitol and Capitol Square. So many different entrees. And the main course in the Capitol cafeteria is one that the Western world had never enjoyed before. Architecturally, it's the first classical Roman temple-style government building created on this side of the Atlantic Ocean. And it became an exemplar for the White House and the U.S. Supreme Court and a lot of principles developed by people elected to serve in office in the General Assembly have been written into not only the Virginia Constitution, but the Constitution of the United States. And Greenough brought my producer Colton to the perfect spot within the Capitol to tell him about this calamity. We're on the second floor, north end of the Capitol, inside the original old hall of the House of Delegates. This room first came to life in October of 1788, and the public pulse began to beat in this building, in this room, when elected delegates elected to go into session as the House. Shut your eyes, get your imagination ready. He's going to paint a picture for you of where they're sitting and why it's so important. We're looking at a rectangular shape room with its original four walls. It's about 76 feet long by about 32 feet wide. Running around uh, all four walls in a regular mathematical pattern are fluted Doric pilasters, invoking that classical style that Jefferson was so enamored of. We have a coved ceiling above us, which is reminiscent of the ceiling in the room at Independence Hall, where the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution were created. The building was designed by Thomas Jefferson, inspired by his point of departure drawings. And he wanted us to have a building that would look classically inspiring from the inside out. The other thing we see in this room are a series of regularly spaced windows and some chandeliers hanging from the ceiling. There's a central speaker's chair uh, front and center on an elevated platform where you can tell the man with the most power in the room is expected to be found. A wooden clerk's table in front of the speaker's chair and then a arching series of desks and chairs to simulate the furniture that would have been here 150 years ago. The Virginia State Capitol opened in 1788, and for state lawmakers and federal legislative bodies, it was a one-stop shop. You had all three branches of government, legislative, executive, and judicial, functioning uh, here in this one big building under a Roman temple-style roof. In other words, the building itself got a lot of use in its early years. Between 1861 and 1865, the American Armageddon of uh, the Civil War between the northern and southern states, the capital was thrust into the center stage of that drama by becoming not only the capital of the Confederacy for four war-tossed years, but still continuing to function simultaneously as the Virginia State Capitol. So by 1865, with the collapse of the Confederacy, the capital was nearly worn out but it was a tired building. When we go forward just five more years from Appomattox to the spring of 1870, we'll get dramatic proof of uh, the limitations of the physical building. But to understand why there were so many people in the third floor courtroom on that April day in 1870, you have to understand the case that prompted such controversy and public interest this will come as no surprise to Richmonders, but it had to do with the city's mayoral race and a brand new Richmond City Council. The struggle is so real even to this day. It's always about who has the power. At that point, 
The mayor of Richmond was one George Chahoon, who had come down from New York State and had flourished under the military occupation of Virginia. Remember, this is right after the Civil War. It's Reconstruction. Virginia's under military rule. But lawmakers were working to restore a civil government, voted on by the people. There was new blood in Richmond City Council, and in March of 1870, they said they wanted a new mayor. His name? Henry K. Ellison. The problem was that George Chahoon refused to give up his seat as mayor, and this became a contest. Both men organized their own police forces, and things got nasty. They both agreed to disagree about who was in charge, and there were street scuffles and crowd disorders and, tragically, two different deaths in two different encounters as this imbroglio continued. The thought of George Chahoon was, well, I'll get support from the military authorities, and I'll get support from the federal court. The local federal courts decided that Chahoon would stay on as mayor until a citywide election in the summer of 1870. Before that came along, by April 1870, Mr. Uh, Chahoon and Mr. Ellison agreed to let the Virginia Supreme Court of Appeals find who ought to have the authority to be mayor now, rather than waiting until a local election in, in the summer. By this time, everyone around Central Virginia was heavily invested in who would become the next mayor of Richmond. The Supreme Court of Appeals announced that it would come to its decision on the 27th of April, 1870, and that the court would convene around 11 o'clock that morning. And on that fateful morning, hundreds arrived to the Capitol to learn who would be mayor of the former capital of the Confederacy. We estimate over 300 people must have crowded into the courtroom on the third floor of the Capitol. There were upwards of 100 people in a spectator's gallery supported by columns reaching down to the floor, and then probably another 200 or so people on the floor of the courtroom. There would be five Virginia judges that would come out onto an elevated platform to announce the decision. Two of the judges emerged from a conference room with spectators waiting for the remaining three to come out and announce their decision. About that time, the bells of St. Paul's and other churches around the city are chiming the hour of 11 a.m., 27 April, 1870. That decision would never be heard that day. And nobody understood what was about to happen. Nobody saw this disaster, this calamity, happening until it did. And the first thought that something was wrong was the sort of a loud snap or cracking sound. And this was apparently a heavy wooden beam that ran along underneath the gallery for the spectators supporting the courtroom floor. And people sort of swiveled around to try and locate a reason for that sharp sound. And then, to everybody's horror, the floor began to sway and sink and collapse. And with the falling down of the floor of the courtroom, there was nothing to hold up the gallery supported by the floor. Some people say that the gallery failed first and pitched down onto the floor, which caused the floor to collapse. But either way, there's a double structural failure. The floor of the courtroom and the gallery filled with spectators are both going to give way, and there's this precipitation of humanity down through a sort of a funnel-shaped failure, and they have nowhere to go but 30 to 40 feet downwards until they hit the floor of the House of Delegates chamber directly below the courtroom. The enormous hole in the floor fueled by gravity devoured anything and anyone from above. About 58 people died outright. Another four people would perish shortly afterwards, uh, having been mortally wounded. And there were another 251 individuals who didn't die, but were injured in various ways to various degrees. And among the uh, injured and dead were 15 injured members of the Virginia General Assembly. 
a senator who was known as James uh, William D. Bland, an African-American member of the Virginia State Senate, was the one legislator who perished. There was this huge mound of uh, detritus and debris and, and death and despair. At first, people who were outside the Capitol thought perhaps that the building was on fire because one of the things you don't think about in this situation is the tremendous amount of plaster dust that is created when, you know, the ceiling falls down from the suction of the floor falling down. You just get clouds of dust and plaster. Many people watched in horror as others ran towards the destruction. The citizens rolled up their sleeves, ran back into the Capitol with an extreme act of bravery, and came into the House chamber and began tugging and pulling away at the debris to try and get to the killed, wounded, and trapped in the mass of material. A lot of people said that very few people could be recognized because of the amount of dust and debris covering them from head to toe. You know, in some cases, uh, blood-soaked clothing on people who were not as badly injured as those who had been above them or below them in the pile. People didn't realize who they were looking at. Their own relatives, their own family and friends were often not recognizable at first except by their voices. And uh, there's some sort of tragic visual scenes. You hear that the Senate chamber, which was on the same floor as the House chamber, but at the south end of the building inside the portico, where they were starting to put the, the corpses of the deceased, sort of a temporary morgue, and other people who were alive were being brought out to the grounds of Capitol Square where they could breathe more easily. It's a tragic fact that a lot of people who succumbed in the disaster did not succumb from broken bones or crushed organs, but simply sheer suffocation. To give you a sense of the scope of this tragedy, Greenough reads from a pamphlet put out in its aftermath. Sad, sad indeed, is the duty of the chronicler of the events and terrible scenes in our state capital on yesterday. Unprecedented in their awful results, heartrending in their every aspect, bringing mourning to our entire city, we almost halt in palsied horror to describe it would be beyond the power of man. This was now a community united in grief. One of the people who spoke on that occasion was a Mr. A.M. Kiley, and at the time, nobody recognized any special significance to that, but he will be an interesting epilogue to this tale. Stay tuned. It was decided in the end not to replace the Capitol, but to repair it. There were others who breathed a sigh of relief that we hadn't torn down this historic building because even by 1870, some people were willing to look upon the Capitol as an important public place and not to be uh, torn down willy-nilly. And I wish I could say that there was this collective consensus in 1870 that Mr. Jefferson's inspirational civic temple should never be sacrificed to expediency or the whims of some new architect in a forgettable design. Uh, this was, in the end, by and large, an example of historical preservation by virtue of public poverty. Virginia could not afford to replace the building from scratch only five years after Appomattox. You may have forgotten how this all started. But there was still a decision to be made on who would be Richmond's mayor. The court reassembled a few days later in Richmond's City Hall. As you might imagine, a very small crowd gathered. And they announced that, in their opinion, for the time being, the local favorite, Henry K. Ellison, should be given authority to serve as mayor until a city election in July of 1870. That's not the end of the story. The election was held that summer in Richmond, and much like anything that happens with Richmond city government, controversy. Chahoon won the election, but people supporting Ellison managed to make a box of votes from one of the city wards disappear that would give the impression that Ellison had actually won the election. And so the results were tainted 
and to his credit, Ellison refused to take office or serve as mayor under that cloud. So he declined uh, to be known as the winner of that election. So there was a decision to have a do-over. But ironically, in that next citywide election, neither men were on the ballot. It was a choice between a Mr. G. Smith or a Mr. A. M. Kiley. And I mentioned A. M. Kiley earlier as being one of the speakers on the South Portico of the Capitol. So A. M. Kiley, originally of New Jersey, but a long time a citizen of Virginia, was the ultimately the mayor who emerged from the political cacophony and uh, physical catastrophe of the Capitol Square calamity. Though the country was far from healed, tens of thousands of dollars in donations poured in from the South and the North. In the end, not only helping the survivors of the calamity of April 27, 1870, but healing a nation that was learning to work and live together again as one. This podcast is recorded by WWBT, NBC 12, in Richmond, Virginia. Thank you, Digital Director Kate Albright, finding a way to mix this sucker from the confines of home. It's our longest episode ever. (laughs) Sorry, Kate. And to executive producer Colton Weekly, who stayed relatively calm during our Zoom sessions. I never saw him turn red once. (laughs) We organized and wrote from a social distance. And thanks to our guests this week, Mark Greenough, historian and tour supervisor at the state capital of Virginia, Frank O'Reilly, lead historian at the Fredericksburg Spotsylvania National Military Park, and Dr. Karen Sherry with the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. Next week on Episode 3. Magnificent in every way. He had beautiful straight legs, a beautiful head, and he was as red as fire. The birth of a Virginia horse racing icon. Super horse, a legend, true legend, a living legend. And a widowed Virginia-born president finds new love after tragedy on the Potomac. Plus... When the 18th North Carolina Infantry fired into the woods, they never dreamed Stonewall Jackson was out there. Severely injured by friendly fire, the secret illness that really broke a Confederate stone wall. And in a very light voice, Jackson whispered, let us cross over the river and rest under the shade of the trees. That's next week on Episode 3. If you like this podcast, please support local journalism. You can find stories like these from a little more recent history at NBC12.com. And if you don't mind, and you use Apple Podcasts, rate and review us. It really does help others find us. If you have any questions or ideas, email us at howwegothere at NBC12.com. We'll be back in your life next Monday.